is Jaja. The Lebowski Deepcast. Laughable, man. <laughs> In each episode of Johnson, Brad and Adam discuss a single Johnson. That sounds like something I would have fucking loved when I was like 12. Providing insight. You know, they always say we learn more from our mistakes than our successes, right? Commentary. I don't know enough about LBJ to really comment. And conjecture. Why is everything about Vietnam? I mean, I know there's not a literal connection, Brad. And now... How's it going, Brad? Pretty good. Merry Christmas, Adam. Ho, 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 Brad. Actually, you're more... Like, you should be doing the ho-ho-hos, probably. Ho-ho-ho. Notice I said Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. I was kind of a toss-up in my mind. But did it come right down to the moment, and then it ju- you just kind of went? It did. I went Merry. I decided to go Merry Christmas. You're a naysayer and a hatchet man in the war on the war on Christmas, aren't you? Oh, very much so. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Brad. It's that Merry it's Christmas that, uh, and Happy Holidays, and to and the listeners holidays. out there, Happy Holidays. Whatever you're celebrating or not celebrating, enjoy the winter. Solstice, Solstice, is it? Sure. Well, not the winter the equinox. Yeah, but that. it's that time. That's really why we celebrate this. Just you're settling in for a long winter's nap. The solstice was a yes. couple days ago. Twenty first is the solstice. But um, and don't don't jump ahead of yourselves. Let's not get into the equinox business. That's a couple oh, six albums. We yeah. still got a couple to go before we get there. So I want to jump the gun on that. Yeah, let's not do that. Leave the Equinox alone. Maybe we can uh, time it so we get to Equinox on the Equinox. How awesome would that be? (laughs) That would kick ass. (laughs) That would kick ass. I think we've got a year to do it. Can we get through two more sticks albums? We have like three months. Oh, the um, summer. Oh, Oh, the e- well. There's an equinox, the equinox, a solstice, and equinox, a solstice. So the equin equini are between the solstice. Yeah, you're either at an equinox oh, or you're at a solstice. You're either a solstice one way or the other, or I you're had back to no being I- equal. I had no idea that's how that worked. Yeah. Huh. That's how the old. That's the procession of the Earth's axis right there. Well, shit. That's how the it whole turned. Darned- Geographical comedy keeps perpetuating itself. You're right. Jesus, I had no clue. I must have known on some level, but I never like it. It was never articulated that way. Maybe I just forgot. I'm getting old. I forget a lot of shit now. Seems like I should have known that at some point. So yeah, yeah, I think that might time out right. It might make it work. Well, we'll see. We'll keep you all in suspense out there in listener land. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of planning, Brad. It'll just kind of happen naturally, though, I feel. That's the okay. kind of charmed uh, recording schedule we have. <laughs> charmed as But today, I, you know, I want to start talking more about equini- equinoxes, but equinoxes. I'm not going to. I'm going to save that for the album Equinox. Okay. That'll okay. pull double duty as far as the album Equinox as well as a discussion of the seasons. Okay. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. I ain't going to argue with that. Because today we're here to talk about Die hard. iTunes and how you should give us a review, right? Don't th- that's what they say. That's good for business, right? Yes, reviewing do that it on too. iTunes. Go to gutterballs.tv, buy a mug, you know? 
Yeah, buy a maybe, mug. Maybe go to iTunes and give us a review. Cover. Give us or a at least give us iTunes. a rating. Reviews even better. We did get a one star rating. We always any ratings are welcome. Yeah, one star, four star, See, five star, star, half star. It's all good to us. I don't like a one star because that's just kind of a. It's like getting five stars. It's kind of a throwaway. Give me a give me a two star. You know, give me a nice two star review or a four star review, even a three. But this one bit, I don't a one. It's like you're not even trying. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Whatever. Give us a one, a two, a three. Uh, what else is there? Um, five. All of those are good. Gutterballs.tv slash, what is it? Support? Oh, Jesus. You know I yeah. should know that. Well, I feel yeah. like we changed it at some point. Or I guess they both work. I think we changed I'm it I'm just going to verify that still works. Yeah, gutterballs.tv slash support. Yeah, it's, it's support. Or just go to gutterballs.tv and click on the support button. Either way. Um, yeah, either way. Do follow it. us on Buy Facebook, something. at Guttercast, on Twitter, at Guttercast, uh, Tumblr, you see what happens, Lebowski.tumblr.com. Is that it? YouTube, not that that matters. Not too much shit on there. Mm, that's it. All right, done with that. My favorite? Well, shit. I, I don't want to just spew off hyperbole here. I was about to say... My favorite Christmas movie on deck today. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Hmm. I'm right when now it, taxed to think of other Christmas movies. I might National put in Lampoon's this Christmas Vacation. Elf. Yeah, that's pretty good. A Christmas Story. That's pretty good. Miracle oh, on Thirty Fourth Street. Yeah. I mean, Bad Santa. Yeah. There's some good ones. Wait, true. What? Mir- Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Was you going? Eh. Yeah. It's a it's a wonderful life, motherfucker. Okay, well that's not Miracle on 34th Street though. You don't like Miracle on 34th Street now. No, I just don't like it. I don't know, it just never did anything for me. I think it's too old. It's a wonderful it, life, like old. It, yeah, but it's transcended its oldness somehow. Miracle on 34th Street doesn't. That's fine. To be honest, Die fascist. Hard doesn't either. I'm jumping ahead, but Die Hard doesn't what? Oh. Doesn't quite mm. hold up. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to lock some horns in this episode. Well, can we start with this? Uh, Yeah. Just started watching the movie. Uh Uh-huh. And it said, based on the novel by someone. (laughs) Okay. It was based on a novel. All right. I just didn't expect that. Okay. You know what I mean? Made you and you hated it immediately. No, no, this is no. I'm just saying. I thought that was pretty interesting. Roderick Thorpe, Roderick Thorpe's 1979 novel, "Nothing Lasts for, Forever." Nothing lasts forever. Now, okay, let's face it. Die Hard is a pretty stupid name. Die Hard. <sighs> what does that even mean? It is, but at the same time, it's kind of good and it's not in its stupidity like it transcends those well maybe it's just like you know those words just transcend it's just two words meaning. together <laughs> yeah it doesn't you know, mean you're anything. a die it's hard just, they, you know die hard is an expression right yeah meaning but I, like you're you're i don't consider the title of this movie a like a noun it's more like it's an ethos uh, let's face it yeah it's an ethos it's like die hard like like there's no article in front there's no like in parentheses article a 
in front of this, a die hard. It's more like you're gonna right. die hard. Right. Or it's hard to die. It's very hard for this guy to die. Or if he sure. does die, he's gonna die hard. Not right, die exactly. nice and easy. He's gonna die hard. He's gonna die Fucking hard. Fucking C four is gonna like Yeah. Blow it's gonna his be on a chair. It's gonna be down an elevator shaft. It's gonna be two hundred men down there covered in glass. But uh we we know this, it's not a die hard, like he's not a die hard, because the second one is called die harder. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, he's a real die harder. I mean, we is can it start called die that. harder? It's die hard too, die harder. Okay. So it's like it's still die hard too, it's just like subtitled that. Right. Subtitled yeah. die harder. Hard. What a strange word. Hard. 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 Hardy yes. hard hard. The movie has four sequels, all of which contain the word hard and die. It's just German for the hard. Let's just, you know, Hans Gruber. <laughs> fucking A, he was man. There. You know what? He's like, God, I hate a, this guy. He's so annoying. He's such a, a hard. Point. Yeah, but the sequels, point. Die Harder, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, and A Good Day to Die Hard. I saw one of those last two. I I don't think I saw the one that was in Russia, which I think was the most recent one. Yeah. The one before that I saw, and it was just like, all right, that's probably enough. Yeah. I think Live Free or Die Hard and A Good Day to Die Hard like just kind of merged in my mind. Like I didn't realize there were four sequels. I just thought there were three. Right. Like right. there was Die Hard with a Vengeance and then the other one. But I guess there was actually two other ones. One in 07 yeah. and one in 2013. So yeah, but that five year gap one. just was kind of like what? It's just oh yeah, it's the same movie. It's still out. I don't so think I ever processed. Out. There were two separate movies because five well, years is like a blink of an eye now. Good day. Good. Which one was the most recent? Good day to die hard. A good day to die hard. I think that was 2013. 2013. That's with his wow. his son in Russia. Right. Right. And when that's 2013. Wow, that was only yeah, three years and then there's ago. Live Free or Die Hard. So six years in between Live Free or Die Hard and Good Day to Die Hard. Six years. See, that's a long time. Six years is how much younger Bruce Willis was than me when he made Die Hard, the original. Which I don't know how why. How much younger but... he was at the time that you are now. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm not okay. 68 years old, but it's still okay, kind it makes of upsetting of because, like, if you look at this guy running around wreaking havoc, killing these people, and he's just like such this badass. It's like 33. It's like, oh come on, I could I could take a 33. I'm older than him, you know. I'm I'm wiser and more like you know streets. I know more shit, but it's like no, it's, he's 33, but. He'll just fuck me up. I had no chance against John McClane. He's 33, though. 33. Like, he's basically, a, he'd be a millennial right now. Wouldn't he? 33? Yes. If he was alive right now, he's 30. So it's like a millennial going around. Like, he does seem. Blowing skyscrapers up. Doesn't he seem like I see he's what you're 45, saying. you know? Yeah. He he's all hairy knuckled. Like, yeah, like watching the movie right now. <laughs> this just goes to show how probably deluded we are about our reality. But like, yes, watching this movie last night, 
because I had not seen it before. That's one of the classics I have missed out on. Wow. Watching it last night, I'm currently 40, soon to be 40. Well, no, I'm 41 now, right? I'm 41. You're, you're not 41 right now. Well, you're I'm 41, 41 when this episode comes out, so. You are that's 41, that's confusion. right. Shit. Yeah, little you time travels involved. Woo! So 41, but watching the movie, I'd be like, yeah, this guy is like about my age, maybe a little older. Maybe a couple years older, but right in there. Yeah, that's what he seems like in the movie. I'm not watching this like, oh, this is a a young guy. Right. I'm like, this is a guy who's a little older. This is like my boss or something at the factory. Yeah, he's been around, you know. He's going through a messy divorce, maybe, you know. Mm -hmm. He's been around. Whereas... Yeah, whereas you see a movie with a 33-year-old in it now, and it's like, why are they casting 18-year-olds in this? <laughs> right. Like, what? Like, what, what is, this like, is weird. Like, is fucking Kristen Stewart, like, 33? Pro- well, she might, probably close to it, probably in her 30s. No, she, or 30, 20, I mean. 26. Oh, well, that's a nice try. Oh, well. Who's 30? Who's 33? Like, who's an actor or actress that's 33, I wonder? Um, like, uh, like, who was the, uh, like, the... Second or third iteration of Spidey. Holy fuck, Tobey Maguire's 41. Holy shit, Jesus. Tobey Maguire is 41. He's the same age as you. Jesus. That's a little fucked up. Fucked up. (laughs) Jesus. Well, because I was like, maybe Tobey Maguire's 33. And then as I was typing it, I remembered, no, shit. He was in fear and loathing like 20 years ago. He wasn't 13 at the time, you know? Right. Fuck. Yeah, no, he was like our age at the time that movie came out. Like, yeah, that oh, makes sense. So, geez. yeah. Fucking. Yeah, who's 33? I don't, I can't name any 33 year olds, I don't think. I don't think I, I, think I know any. Lindsay Lohan is 30, so. Even she's not 33, but she's a child. What about male actors, though? Like, oh. uh, who played Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network? What was his name? Oh, yeah, Man Jesse Eisenberg. How old's he? 33. 33. Holy shit, 33. Woo! Yeah! Woo! So there you go. But yeah, That's but again, he doesn't, he, he's no 33-year-old. No, he's, what's he, like 25? Yeah. Right? But he's 33. If you look at his 33-ness and compare it to Bruce Willie's 33-ness in Die Hard, their 33s ain't nothing like each other. Yeah, in essence, Jesse Eisenberg. Imagine Jesse Eisenberg in... Die Hard today. It would and be that a was different what Bruce movie. Willis was at the time. Well, he was in Die Hard today. He was in that one American Ultra, basically. Right. Was that? And he, I mean, I didn't was, know too much about that. Was it like a Die Hard, though? No, no. I guess it but depends I, but on what like, Die Hard is, it's which like we may have to agree on that movie. first. Yeah. Wait, I we guess have to agree on what? That, we have to agree on what? Well, just what Die Hard is. Well, it's an action movie. Because I think Die Hard is several things at once. Yeah, it's definitely an action movie, but I guess I'm looking at the subgenre of the action. Um, yeah, fuck MK Ultra or whatever it was called. We'll talk about Die Hard. Because this is an episode yeah. of Johnson. Johnson? And we want to make sure we talk about Die Hard. Yeah, let's be very clear There's about this. There's multiple Johnsons. There's multiple Johnsons in Die Hard. There are. Not only are there the two... FBI agents, both named Johnson, comically. Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. But there's even someone in here that transcends Johnson. So much oh. so that it's not just a Johnson, but a Vel Johnson. Oh, shit. And that is Reginald Vel Johnson. 
who Othel plays the Johnson. cop, the cop on the seat on the radio that he talks to. Yep. Later went on to play in Family Matters. <laughs> was kidnapped and mentally tortured by a supernatural Urkel. Did you watch that skit? Yes, I did. Now, it's it one of my favorites. Like, it's very good, but it wasn't laugh out loud funny like the uh, Liam Neeson's Bruce Willie right. one. It's not laugh out loud. It's more like just it's an incredibly dark humor. Yes. An incredibly really dark, good. dry humor. Like people are like, yeah, shooting themselves in the head just to escape the turmoil. <laughs> right. Reginald Vell Johnson was in uh, Ghostbusters as a guess. Guess what? As a a ghost. A police officer. A police officer. There he is. Yep. Then he was an ambulance driver in Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. He was Sergeant Al Powell in Die Hard. He was Detective David Sutton in Turner and Hooch. He reprised his Al Powell role in Die Hard 2. So, like, he got typecast there for a while. Wasn't he a cop in Family Matters, too? He wore a uniform like a cop. Not the sequel. I guess he maybe he was a cop. I feel like he might have been, like, a security guard or something, though. I'm not sure. Maybe he was a cop. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, okay, I got to Google it now. To get, Family matters. It's well, it's easy to get stereotyped and pigeonholed in Hollywood, Brad. I'll bet you. Bet you he was a, a cop. He's the popo, Brad. Bet you. I see. Speaking of Family Matters, Jaleel White just celebrated his fortieth birthday. J- er, the Urkel. Urkel. Yes. He's forty. Um, he just turned Urkel forty is, two days ago. Urkel is forty. Yeah, I don't know what to. I don't have. I, hmm. No, he was. He was a police officer. Okay, there you go. As it says right here. But John McClane, millennial, <laughs> blowing skyscrapers up. Like that's again that weird thing where I don't know how they do it. Maybe it's the writing and they act all like cool and like they know their shit. They know what's going on, but. When you're a, like a teenager and you see people, it's like, well, they're way older than me. And yet here we are, we're like 40 or so, and they still seem older than us somehow, like 20 something years later. But like the actors kind of like the characters stay the same age. They're played by, I don't, I can't even, it's hard to articulate. They're older and then they're younger, but like they always seem older. No, I, you're exactly right. That's completely true. But how is that possible? Like, I don't understand it's, why. It's a weird way that. the human mind works. Or is it manipulating? Is it like deliberately manipulation by the film? No. Well, I think I definitely think maybe like something about like the style has to do with it. Because like you can even watch like a movie, like an old movie, I feel like watch some old Cary Grant movie. And even though he might be 30 in the movie, you're like, oh, he's like a grandpa. Like, he just seems like someone from the 40s, like for his whole life. It doesn't matter what decade you're in. Right. And Bruce Willis just seems like someone like from the 80s. Like, he's just in that mold. Like, he'll be 90 and he'll seem like someone from the 80s. He was 25 and he seemed like someone from the 80s, even though the 80s didn't even happen yet, probably. This is really wrecking me up here. But, okay. This movie, I do have a lot to say about this movie. I think I do. Besides, at least. besides the Johnson and Val Johnson factor, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because what, because what I thought you were gonna say, I didn't even didn't occur to me that there was a Val Johnson. Right, was a dick. There's a dick. There's a dick. 
There's a dick. Um, the uh, the television uh, reporter. Oh, his name is Dick. His name is Dick. So we got another Johnson in there, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah, that at least television reporter was that guy. That guy. That red-haired prick guy. There's so many pricks and sleazy guys in this movie. Yes. Well. So many. I've definitely noticed that. Yeah, but yeah, but that red-haired guy, he was the, like, prick guy in Ghostbusters. Yeah, he wants him to shut down. They even called him Dickless. Yeah, yeah. Dickless here. Is it true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Yeah. He was the, he was uh, the, the, uh, like the, the city dickhead in Real Genius. 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 Real genius. Real genius? Real genius. Real genius. 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 Real genius. Genius. I'm just going to let you work it out. I'll be over here. Real genius. Yeah. Well, see, at first, I thought we were going to, because you said, oh, well, Die Hard has a Johnson in it. We yeah. do this little thing called Johnson. It's Christmas movie and it's Christmas perfect. And I was like, all right. And then I started watching and I was like, okay, there's going to be some Johnson reference in this movie. But then right off the bat in the credits, it was like Reginald Vell Johnson. I was like, oh, is that what he's talking about? We're going to do a whole episode on Reginald Vell Johnson. So were you taking like Reginald Vell Johnson notes the whole time? I, a little bit. Or at least <laughs> I was Bob, like, okay, you know. after this, I guess I'll have to like bone up on family matters and some of his other work. Okay. But then when I saw the two Johnsons, I was like, Oh, that's okay. There is a John. Okay. That's what he means. That's what he was thinking of. Well, I'm glad that it was, you know, I'm glad like you didn't step out to get a glass of water or something <laughs> right. during the Johnson scene, because then you would have been stuck on the Vell Johnson. Right. It would have been a disaster. Yeah. I, was, I didn't want to spoil the surprise but i see how that could have been a problem i apologize no no it's fine it's fine i mean all good it all worked out at the end okay okay so you did see the obviously the uh, yeah no i watched the whole thing whenever i stepped out i paused it okay i didn't want to miss it even when i stopped to jot down notes most of the time i paused it awesome i didn't want to miss a single frame the uh so yeah so okay this movie me being the newbie to it maybe i can describe it And maybe there's some listeners that haven't seen the movie. So I'm going to start by kind of just briefly describing the movie. Yeah, I think spoilers be damned. It's from 1988, for God's sakes. And I'll tell you what, if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry about spoilers, because I will say spoilers wouldn't really ruin this movie. No. It's not like a movie that has twists or or anything. I mean, you don't have to, like, get into, like, the minute details. No. Right, because exactly. there might There's be like suspenseful in... moments, like oh, right. what, who's around right. the corner? But then, like, yeah, but it's not like it's really like a a mystery movie or anything. No, no, it's, it's forty stories of sheer adventure. Yes. So we have Bruce Willis plays John McClane, a New York City cop. As the movie opens, he's arriving in L.A. Why exactly he was doing that? It seemed to me in the beginning, it was just, oh, he's coming to visit his uh, family he's kind of separated from for Christmas. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's not why he was coming. And that was never really, I don't know. I, I swear to God, I paid attention to the whole movie. I don't know how I missed the explanation. So you don't know why he's coming? I mean, to- he's coming to be some kind of like security contractor or something for this tower, I guess. <sighs> What did I miss? You had it right the first time. He's just coming to visit. 
Are you sure you watched the whole movie? But when he came, when he showed up at the tower, so he leaves the airport and goes to this tower. There's a he gets picked up by a limo from this uh um the the uh not the the this Japanese business tower. I, I'm blanking on the name of it right now. I think you're doing fine. Takagi was the name of this CEO guy, and the tower was like the Naga. I don't know Taka Naga. I don't know. Anyway, Japanese business tower. Yeah. So he goes to the Japanese business tower. There's a limo to pick him up. The JBT. He says, "Take me to the JBT." There's kind of this comic relief, um, like I don't know what you call this stereotype. He is. Exactly. He's the plucky comic relief. Yeah, he's the plucky comic relief guy. Picks him up. He goes to the Japanese business tower. So, b- 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 <laughs> b- bottom line, why I'm confused. Like, the CEO sent a limo for him. He got there. They seem to be talking to him like he's there for business once he's talking to the CEO and stuff. And I was like, oh, he's here for, like, business. Now I understand why, like, they sent a limo for him and everything. So you keep... Japanese business towering right past the necessary exposition, which is the limo ride between the airport and the Japanese business tower. Okay. Where he describes his relationship with his wife and everything. Yes. Well, he doesn't a little bit, but Argyle, the limo driver, being streetwise as he is because he used to drive a cab and now he drives a limo. Kind of his first day driving some, a limo, uh, mind you. His first day driving a limo. He's got some insight into, you know, human behavior and he kind of nails it. He's like, you know, McLean says, Bruce Willie says, you know, his uh, wife moved out here. She got a job, turned into a career. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't exactly pick up and move because he's a New York cop. He's got a six month backlog on all these criminals. Can't just pick up and move. He's got to put them behind bars and all that. And Argyle's like, so basically, you thought she'd come out here, it wouldn't work out, and she'd come crawling back to you. Ha 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 ha. You're very fast, Argyle. Yes. Yes. But that's, so that's all. Well, no, that explains the relationship, yes. And at this point, I was still under the impression he was just going to see his wife for Christmas. Yeah, he's, of course, and his children, of course. Except, he gets to the tower. I would have to go back <laughs> to find the exact dialogue. There's a lot of dialogue that insinuates he's there... To meet the CEO guy, not to see his wife. His wife just happens to be there. It's ju- that I Maybe don't his know where wife- you're getting that from. That is madness to me that that's what you take from it. It's just that Holly is his wife is a big shot in that company. She just closed a huge deal. Obviously, they know about, you know, her husband probably talks about him. It's like they want to like it's first of all, it's a Christmas party. They're in the spending mood. They're throwing a big party. Of course, they're going to pick him up. Because, you know, she's one of the big shots there and like usher him here. And while Holly's out, like whatever, doing her thing, it's like the CEO's there just chit chatting with him until Holly comes in. Well, it's more of the content of their game. But then also when Holly is talking to him, she's kind of like, oh, well, did you have a place to stay or whatever? And then she's yeah, like, Cappy. the kids would love to see you as if like it was he wasn't even maybe planning on maybe it was up in the air whether or not he'd even see the kids. Well. It, it's not up in the air that he's going to see the kids. It's up in the air whether or not he's going to stay at the house. She even tells yeah. the uh, uh, nanny that, Consuela right. or whatever. It's like, maybe you should make up the spare. You know, it's like, it's very tense between the two of them. Right. So they haven't like, you know, you don't just say like, hey, can I stay at your house? Yes. 
You know, they haven't like, they're dancing around the subject. It's very sore. They don't really want to get into it. You can tell because they like, it gets into the whole, she changed her last name thing. And they immediately start like, so like, it's very raw. So you can't like, they're just tiptoeing around. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to stay up in, in Ramona or whatever, Pomona. And she corrects him on the name because she's so LA now. Yes. So if I, all right. So just a misunderstanding on my part in that one aspect of it, in the kind of the intro to the movie and the setup. He is just there to see his family just try to, like, hopefully patch up things with his wife. One thing I will say also. Well, okay, I actually have a lot about this movie. I'm going to try to just stick to the plot for now and then go back to because there's actually a lot to unpack in their discussion and what we just talked about. Yes. Um. But more or less, he so he's there at this uh, Japanese, Japanese business, business tower, <laughs> and terrorists come in, take everyone I, hostage. I want to tell you the name of it so bad, but I really it's prefer Taka, Japanese business. Tower. My, yeah, I don't know. I like Japanese business tower better. <laughs> These terrorist guys, quote unquote terrorists, come in. Um, there are people that we are somewhat familiar with, you and I personally, Adam, as in these are the German nihilists have come in. <laughs> One of their names is even Uli. Yeah. Like, okay, it's, it, you know, it's not an ethos. Are we going <laughs> to split hairs here? Yeah. Uh, no funny business. <laughs> yeah, no funny business. Right, exactly. Um, John McClane happens to be the, you know, he's not in the you know, main area where the party is. So he's kind of like a free agent now roaming the building, trying to thwart, thwart their plan, save the people that include his wife. Um, it kind of starts out in a very, it kind I feel like when I said before about the side, what this movie is, it kind of changes tone at some point. Cause it starts out well, one. I really love the fact that he does this movie barefoot, Right. Right, and right. That's, that's one a of nice the kind of gimmick. iconic things. It's a great gimmick. It's a great again making him feel vulnerable. Right, the it's vulnerable a, action hero. It's yeah, kind of a great, new thing at the time. Yeah, and it's like the great symbolism of that. Um, you know, yeah, it's pretty much just him and his wits. He doesn't even have shoes. Right. Um, you know, because again, it was again set up in the beginning of the movie. The guy told him about how you take your socks off and like make little fists on the carpet to refresh yourself after flying. It's it uh, it all builds upon previous things. Yes, it's there's just, a lot a of great... like everything that happens in this movie was referenced previously. Yep. Um, I will say this: Did you ever do the take your socks off and make little fists on the carpet after a plane ride? Of course, I did. <laughs> like, but because of the movie, or well, I guess you saw the movie when you were a kid, so there's no way right. in your mind to separate it. Because I do no. that naturally, never having seen the movie. What? Yeah, get out of here. That fucking is feels so fucking amazing. At, but specifically after a plane ride. I, I mean, I guess or I would say I stressed? might do it after any kind of like long voyage where you're like stuck. You know, like if it's a long car trip, even I might do it. It doesn't have to be a plane ride, but definitely plane rides. Shoes and socks. Shoes and socks off, and you like kind of rub rub them into the carpet. No, I, and it feels so good. Like, that's the first thing. Like, I flew, land in L.A., get to the hotel. It's like, all right, take these off. Oh, so good. Your dogs are barking refreshed. today. My dogs were barking. Exactly. <laughs> so I could really relate to that. Again, this is the guy 
John McClane is kind of like the everyman. And it starts out every man. It starts out that way because he is running around very vulnerable and very much like, oh, fuck, what do I do mode? Right. You know, they even show him like, okay, think, John, think. How the fuck you get out of it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's kind of like, oh, shit, this guy just got fucking killed. I fucked up. You know what I mean? But then, like, somewhere through the movie, it switches where he's like, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And he's just like a Chev Chelios, unstoppable guy. Oh, shit, they're shooting at me. Quick, let me grab the fire hose and rappel down the building and jump in the window. Like, it kind of shifts at some point tonally. Yeah, I, I mean, felt. the adrenaline's pumping and, like, yeah, yeah I guess you know, he, I guess at that he point, could say maybe that's it. part of his journey, right? From being, like, a normal guy into an action hero. Right. And it t- takes him the the course of the movie to do that i i suppose that's part of the uh yeah i guess that's the idea but it just seemed to me like it still seemed like a strange like mix of tones but maybe that's what's interesting maybe that's what's kind of iconic about the movie i don't know i didn't feel like they really explained like or showed deliberately like yes he is evolving as much as it was just like okay now he's just kind of gone ape shit like you don't want to mess with this guy anymore right you pushed him far enough um, they keep pushing him and pushing him. He's not going to yeah. take it. Um, the movie is full of 80s-isms. Give me an example or more um, than one example. A guy doing coke in coke the office. The right. The um, couple in the uh, Christmas party looking for a place to have sex. And then the when the terrorists come, they like throw the door open and pull them out. And the woman's topless. It's just like a gratuitous breast yeah. shot. Very 80s. Yeah. You gotta have that breast shot in there. It's yeah. what we were hoping for with uh, regarding Henry. Right, never we regarded came. that. Never happened. Another another eighties movie. And there's so much casual, again, casual like uh, sexual harassment. Yeah, and uh, misogyny in this movie. I had to make a s- separate section in my notes called Horn Dog Alert. Well, I only one, two, three, four, five. Six. I only have six. I only got halfway through. I've seen the, the movie mis- like. 40 times yeah, the misogyny so. goes a lot deeper than that though i think well sure way deeper but i was just like just explicit yeah but just like right. yeah just the way people the their their like um portrayal of what it's like in a japanese business tower right <laughs> well not e- on people the are just shagging each other grabbing in the airport like it starts oh yeah in the, the very airport first he's scene. like ogling the woman in the pants yeah it starts before the woman in the pants. That's a good, nice way to refer to her. It starts on the airplane when he gets up. And oh, I made a, another section called different era alerts. Yes. Too, because he's era. carrying his firearm on the plane, shoulder hose or on the plane. Just like no big deal. I'm a cop. No big deal. I'll just carry my gun. So there's that. But then he grabs a teddy bear down off of there. And as he's exiting the plane, the flight attendant, well, stewardess, I guess, since it's 1988, the stewardess is walking by and they kind of have a face to face like Cooper and the llama for a moment. And he's like, keeps looking back at her like, mm, got to get me some of that. Yeah, I didn't even thing. quite notice that. I mean, Jesus. And then the girl at the airport, the girl in the pants. And then he blames it on California. He's like, oh, California. California. Yeah. What? Because I wish they all could be California girls because they're blonde and shapely. And well, I think this goes and- into something that I'm holding back on, which is the ultimate like. This is a very conservative red state movie. Okay, let me get through my horn dog alerts real quick, <laughs> and, and then we'll get into why that. He's like, "Oh, California!" Right, right, right. Sure. Um, girl in the window when he first gets to the party, and she's just standing up there and bathed in the 
setting sunlight. Yeah. And they're seeing her through the dripping water fountain. Yeah. It's sort of an ejaculatory motif over top of her just spraying down on her. Uh, the secretary who comes in and interrupts their little quasi fight in his wife's office. She's ogling him. Uh, the pinup girls in the construction zone of the Japanese business tower, which they go back to more than once. And the second time he sees them on the wall, they even give a little like audio, like brown, yes, like acoustic. And he he touches them with his hand. He touches them, girls. He says, "Like what the fuck? So odd." Anyway, that those are my horn dog alerts because I, like I said, I just went through it real quick. Yeah. Never mind, like sleazebag Ellis who's doing the coke on the desk, like right. constantly coming on to his wife nonstop. Anyway, Red State movie. Yeah. Well, I, I, well I'm going to, that's just a preview of what's to come. All right. So okay. let me go into a little more detail on the plot, right? Yeah. We, let's get, yeah, let's do we that. We got to the basic here. Okay. Yes. We set I'm the kind of it. 80s scene here. Party, terrorists come. McLean has to stop them. There's kind of a series of cat and mouse things happen i don't know if i really need to get into all the details you know like one of the like the ceo of the company ends up getting killed because he won't give them like the password to the computer system you know mclean ends up uh killing somebody one of the terrorists and then he kind of sends the body down to the terrorists as a message it -hmm. says i have a machine gun now ho 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 or something to that effect yeah now i have a machine gun yeah ho 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 Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth cat and mouse. Um, you know, he tries multiple times to kind of signal the police. Right. And Sets the, off and the fire silly bureaucracy, you know, doesn't uh, work very well. They eventually send poor Reginald Vell Johnson in his little patrol car with his donuts. And Twinkies. Twinkies to go take a look at it eventually it seems like he's about to just leave and be like, yeah, there's nothing here. When Bruce Willis throws a dead body onto the hood of his car (laughs) to get his attention. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah. Um, I always thought he was saying, welcome to the party, Powell. And I was like, how did he know his his name? name? Yeah. Al Powell is Val Johnson's name. Yeah. So then Again, more cat and mouse pursues it. More cat and mouse kind of stuff happens. But this time you have like police around the building trying to do stuff. Again, you have the arrogant police chief trying to do their things. They're not listening to Bruce. They're like, how do we know who this guy is? He's just crazy because he's like talking to them on the radio. Right. Right. Um, then eventually the FBI takes it over and they're even more fucking insane than the, the, the police chief people. Because they're even deeper down into the bureaucracy yeah our little step-by-step like, step method of yeah. handling a situation. and even though they're like into this bureaucracy they're also kind of like crazy bloodthirsty too yeah. like yeah. they just want to fucking kill people it's like vietnam eh slick i was in junior high dickhead dickhead yeah those are agents johnson and johnson no relation yep. ha 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 no relation as one is caucasian and one is african-american yep um <laughs> no relation so you have johnson and johnson there uh ultimately the you know it's revealed that the terrorist plan is they want to steal like 600 i think it's like 600 million dollars in bearer bonds that are in this safe yeah um you know they eventually get there and 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 get the bearer bonds in the process they discover that 
Holly is actually John McClane's wife, who is this fly in the ointment that's been fucking up their plans, is waging his little guerrilla war in the tower against them this whole time. Comes down to a showdown, finally, between the head honcho, terrorist, Hans Gruber, and John McClane. John Alan Ma- Rickman, rest in peace. Yes. Alan Rickman, what a force of mm. talent that guy was. Mm-mm-mm. And great in this role, too. Yep. Ultimately defeats the guy of course um you know there's some other details in there like all right whatever defeats whatever. them reconciles with his wife makes a new friend couple new friends yes kills a bunch of people blows up a building it's all good merry all christmas good. merry christmas he and his wife Closes drive off some, into the sunset the dro- wife now Sinatra, enamored with right? him because he's such a action star such a badass man. yeah so so, you did good. You did good, Brad. Yes. And so, like I mentioned, some of the things I really liked about the movie, right? Like, I liked John McClane's kind of everyman, at least the way it started. You know, his everyman type of uh, persona, his bare feet being the ultimate symbol of that. Again, it was a nice gimmick. He runs through the whole movie barefoot. Right. and Which becomes keep- part of the problem, because at the end... Right, Han. At one point, Hans realizes that and like just shoots all the glass out of all the windows in like this office building. It's all kind of like cubicles with glass. She's a fenster. Alexander Gudnov's like, huh? Shoot the glass. Yeah. So they and then you know he has to walk. He runs. Has to run across the glass to get away. And how about Feet that? Just when he's butchered, bleeding. <laughs> how about Again. when he's pulling the big chunk of glass out of his feet? Yeah. That's pretty nice. Did that make you squirm at all? It didn't really make me squirm, but I I, I definitely appreciated it, right? I was yeah, like, yeah, this is there. some good, like, this is a nice gimmick they had here. They used it to good effect, and they used it also in the sense of kind of bolstering, amplifying kind of, again, his vulnerability as a character in this movie. It's totally great. It's totally great. And then, like, you know, the first terrorist he kills, it's like, come on, dummy, take his shoes. But they know that, and they actually have him do that but he's like you know five million terrorists in the world and i gotta kill one with feet smaller than my sister yeah. again belittling the women but like he's got tiny little feet and so again shoes don't even fit yeah and as i understand that gimmick is from the novel that this actually movie from what i read hewed very <laughs> close to the novel <laughs> in a lot of details it. i mean they changed some things around yeah you have to. You have to. And, like, you know, they changed some relationships. Like, originally, it wasn't his wife. It was his daughter in the building. Hmm. Well, originally, this was written for Frank Sinatra to play. What? <laughs> I know. Tell me about it, right? Wait. In 1973? Yes. Frank Sinatra was, they were eyeing up him for the lead of John McClane? Because this novel is a sequel to the novel turned movie The Detective, where Frank Sinatra played the titular detective, the John McClane character. And so they so when this guy wrote it, he pictured um Frank Sinatra. He pictured an older man in this role. Kind of like we were talking about this, more like right. you know, he's seen it all kind of a cop character, which Bruce Willis kind of plays also, even though he's a younger person, right? So in He the, would have been seventy three years old or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe well, at least he was born in the 60s. In 1915, so he would have been yeah, 73 years old. Jesus Christ! But again, well, he that would was have been if more it was vulnerable. made in 1988. 
But the novel right. was written, I think, in like True. 1973. So Good he would point. have been 58 at the time. 58. Right. Good point. But, uh, you know, Sinatra like turned 16. it down and it was just kind of like shelved for a while. At one point, they, I guess, offered it to Arnold Schwarzenegger and he turned it down. You, you know, know hindsight's great, 2020. Here's one of the most iconic action movies. Nah. Not the same if uh, Schwarzenegger's in there because he was the definition of like a action hero. Right. You know, you got your Predator and you got your Conan the Barbarian and whatever. You got your Terminator. Not a lot of vulnerability there. But uh, yeah, Bruce yeah. Willie, different different sort of fella. But I had no idea about that Frank Sinatra business. That's awesome because they closed the movie out with a Sinatra song. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? That is... That just really ties the movie together for me. And I feel like an idiot, but <laughs> Frank Sinatra was married to Barbara Streisand, Brad. Really? Yeah. According to Wikipedia. I didn't know that. Well, I must be old school. Well, it, until like, uh, until his death, Sinatra was lastly married to, to, uh, where am I seeing this? Stand by. Well, when did Frank Sinatra die? It says 98. Seems crazy. Really? Oh no, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Sinatra. I just looked at it real. I was like, "What the fuck?" Okay, yeah, that makes was, a lot okay, more sense. That's a lot more sense. Her, her last name would be the same as his. Yeah, Jesus. I almost had like a what the fuck? Here we are spreading more disinformation. Oh, I let's shut it. it down. Shut it down. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Is that all? Yeah. So okay, misogyny. Misogyny. Let's get into it. Let's start there a little bit. And you're not going to start with Ellis somehow? No. I'm going to. That's right. just kind of the like court jester little... misogyny. Okay. You like, want to get the real stuff. Yes. And the fact that Bruce like the Willis stuff. is playing this kind of like every. I say every man, but really there's more to it than just an every man. He's a. He's a very he's kind collar. of like traditional New York style, like, hey. Don't don't bullshit me, man. Kind of a guy. I don't know. Right. A you know a traditional Meat potatoes. None of this fancy business. Yeah. Give me my, give me my bottle of beer straight out of the bottle. None of this uh, mulled wine shit. Mm-hmm. I'm but, gonna like wipe my armpits down with my like you know wife beater t-shirt on. Yeah. So you we have to call it that still. So we have him that, as this cop guy, very blue is that collar. More casual misogyny. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Sorry. Please proceed. And but his wife then gets elevated into this big executive position. Mm-hmm. Her career takes off. Yeah, as we already discussed good. in the beginning, he was kind of like, "Well, that's not going to last or whatever. I'm not going." You know, it caused it's a rift a in the marriage. And even when they had their little argument about what type of marriage this is or how he envisioned this marriage, right? Like, the subtext was definitely, oh, my wife is, like, a super successful power executive making probably 20 times my salary. Right. Right. Um, Right. And that's putting stress on their marriage. It will put stress. Like, they're separated, in essence. Right? Right. Um, Yet... When the terrorists come, who does she need? She needs old Johnny McClain. <laughs> you can be your fancy, liberated woman executive, but you still need your badass John McClain to save you from the terrorists. Right? And and in the beginning, they make a deal. The Ellis guy makes a deal. You know, and, and again, how this movie sets everything up. 
right? And they do a good job of it in the way, like, it just seemed like his talking about the Rolex was him just trying to, like, I don't know, trash talk John McClane a bit to be like, yeah. Yeah, being condescending. Condescending to him because the wife got some kind of fancy Rolex as a bonus, as like a gift for being so awesome at this Japanese business tower. (laughs) At the end, Hans Gruber, you know, McClane shot him. He falls out the window, but he grabs on to Polly, the wife, and is you know, going to pull her down. McLean and Holly are kind of trying to fight back and stay in the building. McLean reaches down and he has to unclasp that Rolex. Because he's kind of grabbing onto yes. it like it's helping him hold on yes. to her And when wrist. he does that, it like breaks the grip and he falls. So again, it's symbolic. She needs to give up this Rolex. Like this Rolex that was the symbol of her success and all. He liberates her from that, in essence, saving her life. And then... At the end of the movie, they drive off because she's just like, now she's just a gog with this guy. Like, he fucking, okay, maybe I make 20 times his salary, but, you know, he fucking just killed all these guys for me. Like, I'm just in love with him now. We're going to make up. I always was under the impression that the Rolex wasn't necessarily a gift from the company proper, the Japanese business tower, but it was kind of like from Ellis. Yeah, personally. I'm with, I could might get behind. Like when they, when they introduced it, it was weird because at first I thought for sure it was just from him. Like he was trying to say like, hey, I'm in competition. I've put my bid in here on Holly Gennaro. But yeah. then the way it's like, oh, well, she got it for meeting her quota or whatever. It's kind of like, well, maybe it's not. Yeah. I think, like, Ellis was probably championing the whole watch, the whole Rolex right. effort, because she did that thing, closed a big deal or whatever, and then he was, like, leading the charge on the, you know, we should get her a Rolex, to, and, you know, Takagi was kind of like, all right, fine. But, like, yeah. he was, like, doing it. Yeah. Like, maybe he didn't pay for it, but, like, he was leading the charge. So you're trying to say the Rolex just really symbolized her, like, saying goodbye to Ellis, even though he had already died? It was her, it symbolizes her, like, not searching outside the marriage and, like, yeah, coming back to that too, but I think there's definitely a, yeah, sure. It definitely symbolizes her coming back to McLean. It symbolizes her life apart. But it also symbolizes, I think, her success as a as an executive. Could be. Could be. And, you know, it's yeah, one I'm thing not, if this was the that. one issue. But again, I think this whole movie falls into a lot of, sends a lot of messages. Not necessarily particularly about, like, uh, you know, what I would call misogynist messages. But I'm going to call not, them stereotypical 80s conservative messages, right? To- so this totally. was There's still... A lot of like- it's anti-materialism, too, I guess. Yes. Well, it's about the fact, again, you have the fancy people. They're not, you know, they don't know what to do the way a uh, salt-of-the-earth guy like McLean does, right? Right, right. Um, and again, we have the, the idea, so there's this attack here on, again, the way the further up the chain we go into this bureaucracy, the more insane it is, right? Like, so we have John McLean. The rugged individual. And Al Powell, street working the beat. Yes. Cop. Versus this kind of like insane bureaucracy society. People are more just ignorant and, you know, like 
again, the further you go up, you have the L.A. chief, then you have the um, the FBI guys and like everything they do is more or less inadvertently helps the terrorists. Right. McLean is kind of like having to fight them off or like pick up the, their garbage that they're leaving around at the same time, fight the terrorists. Right. Right. And then you have. And yeah. Go on. Like that extends to the that extends to the media, too. Yes, exactly. Like it gets worse and worse the higher up the chain you go. You got Dick Thornburg, reporter on the street. He's awful. Yeah. And then you got the uh, on-camera studio host. He's even worse, as in Helsinki, right. Sweden. Yeah. Well, that's Finland. the thing. It's you one know, it's thing like... to have the <laughs> the 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 news guy on the scene who's kind of fucks things up by like uncovering information about John McClane and broadcasting it and the terrorists see it and everything. Right. Right. Making their life, harder making their life harder again. And he's just in it for the big story and getting an award or whatever. Like, you know, it has that media character, like there's no need for it to even show these other media people, like except to make a statement to show like the anchors back at home. And again, their phoniness and their, their, you know, just, and, you know, it takes a very condescending view toward them. And it's like, oh, here's the expert on hostages and terrorism talking who just is like droning on in this academic right. sense about what's happening. It just keeps cutting back to him every now and again. Right. Like, it's like, you know, it's like, the yeah, we hostages. don't need this book learning. We don't need this stupid media. <laughs> we just need a guy in a wife beater with no shoes and a gun. Like he's two the bullet. He knows what he's doing. And this whole, he's you know, talking about. The Helsinki syndrome, which they called it that in the movie, it's called something else. I don't remember. Stockholm like, syndrome. Yeah. Stockholm. Thank you. Um, Stockholm, Sweden. Right. That's why. So they changed it for some reason, which I never understood why they changed it to Helsinki syndrome. Because then he, the anchors, like as in Helsinki, Sweden, and the fancy pants expert who needs these experts corrects him and says, "Yeah, Finland, but uh, Stockholm syndrome." Stockholm, Sweden. So that's weird. They were given a little, they weren't allowed to use that or something anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's all phony. Cause then he's mad at the director. He's mad at Dick Thornburg. He's like, shove it. What's his name? Yeah. It's all stupid. But like the expert quote unquote, that they have on there droning on and on is talking about the hostages and terrorists at this point will be getting along and they'll be developing these bonds and, you know, they're kind of in it together and, Meanwhile, they keep cutting back and they're like dragging Ellis's lifeless body <laughs> out right. of the area with blood everywhere. I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's like we don't need these fancy pants media people. We don't need these fancy pants experts. We don't need fancy pants government. We don't need fancy pants business people. We just need John McClane and a wife beater and bare feet and a gun. But there's something to that, like the media cycle. It's like. This has only been going on for a couple of hours. It's the same night and they've already like made a big show out of it. And now it's like they're in it for the ratings and they're just like droning on and on about this situation, which, you know, for 88, like, boy, yeah. that was kind of. Well, again, it's not just a action movie. It's also a kind of a political statement. Like it's a very politicized movie, I think. Toad. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like with you. just the but same it, way I would say RoboCop is right, but to the left, this is like the conservative RoboCop in a way. Conservative Ro RoboCop. I can get behind that. I can get behind that. But it, it's you know presaging some things that are happening today. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Rel I mean, I don't want to say it's relevant 
Because I don't necessarily relevant. think the movie. I don't. I don't buy into the movie's picture. Right? I see that it comes from this certain point of view that is not mine. I would say that point of view that's not mine has become very popular in America and world over recently. Perhaps right. Well, not. I mean, it comes and goes. It ebbs and flows. Unfortunately, yeah. this. Yeah, but this flow is pretty big. This is Let's like a, this is a high water mark. But yeah. But Let's not get in. Yeah, because we're here to talk about Die Hard. But, you know, and even Die Hard. the, okay, so Al Powell, the Reginald Vell Johnson character, his sad backstory is he works at a desk because he accidentally shot a kid. I shot a kid. He had ray, he had a, the kid had a ray gun. It was dark. He couldn't see what was happening. He shot the kid. You know, of course, feels horrible about it. Now can't bear to, like, draw his gun at all, shoot anybody. Right. That's his kind of sad backstory. But then at the end, the movie seems done. One of the terrorists, the one that was particularly out to get out for blood on John McClane this whole time. You know, we thought he was dead, but he comes running out of the building with a gun. McClane just kind of like shields his wife with his body on the ground. But what do we have? But Reginald Vell Johnson, Al Powell, pulls out his gun. Bam, 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 kills the guy. And he is now healed. He is once again made whole because he can murder bad guys. He's gotten over the hesitation he had over killing an innocent kid. The murder shall bring us back to the light, Brad. Yes. And again, yeah. So again, lots of, you know, I think points of view Although political murder, points of view that I'm not really into murder, though. I mean, you know, I don't like the guns too much, but murder. I mean, he's coming out there. Well, murder in self-defense. Maybe I shouldn't say blood murder. Is wherever. And he's got a machine gun and he's yeah. leveling it at some people and he shoots him. Is that murder? Murder. Well, I mean, I don't know the legal definitions, right? I mean, without a killing. doubt, it's justified. I won't make try to make that argument, but. It's also a theoretical situation that doesn't exist too often in real life. For sure. So it's a kind of, a again, a politically manufactured thing, right? But Al Pal just got over killing the kid by murdering this guy. And you're going to, you know, hold his feet to the fire. All of a sudden he just got healed, dude. Yeah. Give the dude a break. The bottom line is, I didn't know, going into this, I had no idea I was in for this political statement that this movie was. Yeah, I mean. And I have to say, it's you're... very, int- I'm very interested in it from like a, in a sort of like academic way, right? To, to be, like, again, it's not my political point of view at all. So it's even hard for me to fully understand it. Like, you know, like the way the, uh, you know, the way John McClane like punches the news guy out at the end. Like well, John no, Mc- Holly punches him. Oh, Holly does. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I somehow missed that. I somehow just didn't realize whose arm it was swinging. It all happened so fast. Yeah. He kind of like goes for him a little bit, but no, Holly, punches, oh, Holly him punches him out. Okay. Well, whoever that comes back to into relevance in die hard to die harder. Okay. The harder. So, yeah. So again, like the, the kind of, uh, what I imagine like catharsis or something, that the p certain a certain like a lot of the audience felt at that moment like oh yeah punch out the media guy woo let's clap like you know what I mean it what was it, obviously like meant for that type of reaction. But in 1988, what did they need catharsis? Like 
you're saying this, you know, coming at it from the political side of things. Um, what did that facet of the country need catharsis from? Is that the right? Right. No. Is good. that grammatically correct? Because, you know, we're tail end of the Reagan era here, you know. It's like, what do they need all this catharsis from? Well, all uh, well again, everything that might be, uh, you know, I think the media has always been a boogeyman, especially on of the conservatives, right? On the conservative side in America. Um, you know, here's all the that. media attacking Mr. Reagan, such a nice, upstanding geriatric citizen, just trying sure, to do sure. good. And here we are like, well, you, well, we sold weapons to, you know, the Contras. Well, you know, or we sold weapons to remember. Iran to use it to then use that money to fund the, you know, the the war in in South America or whatever, Central America. It's kind of like, oh, you crappy media people just trying to I I don't know, right? I was too young then to really know. So, but again, there know, is this thing in the like this is very, you know, again, the rugged individual is such a 80s thing political icon trope right it's all of all through america but especially in the 80s like that was big time i don't know i it's still around and i still love it like john wick john wick 2 is coming out soon can't wait john wick is different though that's it's just one dude just fucking shit up i'm not saying what like you can have one dude fucking shit up like you know i love chev chelios Sure, one dude fucking shit up. But one dude he knows how to get shit done. Shit up does not. I know there's more going on here. I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm just. I'm specifically referencing the like loner, like one guy against an army. Yeah, ethos. And I guess will. it's the idea that all of our institutions and our government and everything kind of like holds that man back, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the other side of the coin where it goes too right. far for me when you pit it. In this duality, right, against that, which is, I don't know. Well, part of the issue is not duality. You're seeing this when you're 41 years old for the first time. Yes. You know, and I wish, well, I don't wish because I'm glad we get to have this conversation. But imagine seeing it when you're 12 or 13 years old because you were just trying to figure out the Iran-Contra stuff. And it's like, I don't fucking remember. I was too young, right? Yeah. It's like we just knew, like, there's guns, there's money. Some didn't seem like maybe it was so good. I, that's all I know, right? Because you couldn't really wrap your mind around it. So watching this as like a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, it's right. just like, fuck yeah, action movie. Never seen anything like it. And just like I get to or I got to experience it just from pure storytelling and entertainment. It, none of this shit ever really occurred to me. I never really thought about it that much because I would just like revel in all these cool moments that I like grew up with yeah no i'm with you on that and i think i probably would have liked well i don't know i'm not sure what i would have thought of it at the time because at the time i didn't really like i mean i loved action movies but they needed more of a hook like i liked like the if, rock i know no no, no we oh, know no, that's we way get it. out like like i'm saying like if there's a um like sci-fi like the terminator right fucking awesome but it has that sci-fi hook right like Certain like so Arnold Schwarzenegger sci-fi movies liked, but like a lot of these like you know Steven Seagal and John Claude Van Damme movies that everyone seemed to like at the time and everyone knew all my like yeah. you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old brethren all knew all about like out for justice, hard target, kill the bastard, I mean, lonely <laughs> no. gun shop, like whatever they were called, like you know like I I was like 
Kill the bastard doesn't work because there's no preposition in it. It would have to be kill for the bastard or something. Yeah. But no, I see, I watched all those movies, but I knew they were stupid and terrible. Right. Die Hard was different. Yeah. And, it's and like, Die Hard, this is a good fucking movie. Yeah. So I probably would have liked it. Well, here's the weird thing that I kept comparing it to in my mind. Oh, boy. No, no, this will be good. And actually, another John McTiernan film. Uh, what was I going to say? The Hunt for Red happened. October. Well, shit. 1990. Because his follow-up to this. I remember watching The Hunt for Red October. I liked that movie. And being fucking blown away by it. It's awesome. Like, I was just so fucking into it, right? And again, I just turned that movie on a couple weeks ago and watched the first couple minutes, but then, you know, the family was like, ugh, so I had to turn yeah, it on. Yeah, I've had that same thing. I've tried to get, like, my wife, you might know her name, Kristen. I'm like, no, just watch it. It's pretty good. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes. She's just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. You know, I get it, right? Like, it's, again, it's kind of aged and everything. But there so was. I want you to. Before you go, I, I want you to come back to this, but mm-hmm. I just need, before I forget, so the hunt for Red October, you know, they have the little, I think they refer to it as like telemetry text or something. So it's it'll be like, you know, North Sea and the green, like, pixelated text. Yeah, you mean like bottom. the text that like appears, like the titles that like say where you are. Yeah. Bering right. Sea or North yeah. Sea, Washington uh, D.C. Latitude, blah blah blah. Washington D.C. to the Russian Embassy, whatever. Yeah, seven oh eight p.m. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a sound that accompanies it. Deet, okay. You know the sound. Yeah, Deet. I'm. I'm they, it, p- picturing it. I'm hearing it, it in my mind. It's used here everywhere. Anytime they have like descriptive text, especially in like spy or thriller type movies, yeah. there's that sound. Deet. The Hunt for Red October was the first time. That they had used that sound. Oh, really? And wh- whoever the sound guy was, like, he created this by getting, you know, layering some different shit. Jen Ralston would be able to talk about this more. But, like, that was the first time that – because the text, like, appearing and they'll use it, like, if, if you see text on a monitor come right. on, like, like, it doesn't actually make any sound. It's ridiculous mm-hmm. to assume that. On For Red October, supposedly, was the first time they used that sound – as like uh, i guess diegetic sound to accompany text appearing on screen but watching die hard when he's there and he goes into the lobby when he first arrives at the japanese business tower mm-hmm. and he's he's got the fancy touch screen and he's tapping it right it's making that same fucking sound mm. so but it's not it's not like text like a title appearing on the screen but it is like the touchscreen computer making that sound. And it's the same fucking thing, I swear. That being said, I don't know if the same uh, audio sound recordist or whatever worked on this movie, but I can figure that out. Hunt for Red October. This reminded you of Hunt for Red October. Well, I guess in partly in a couple ways. One, I think it the way the reason I started thinking of Hunt for Red October was like I was trying to put myself back in that mindset, right? So as I was remembering how awesome Hunt for Red October was when I watched that. Yeah. Like seeing that movie for the first time is kind of just burned into my memory. Uh, that's kind of partly because like I, I wasn't necessarily even expecting it to be good or anything. I wasn't even sure what it was. It was just like, oh, this is coming on HBO. And it was a Sunday afternoon. I was at my friend's house. Oh, see, that's the best kind of way to do and it. And it kind of came on and we just kind of watched it. And I was just, it, it just fucking, I was like, holy shit. 
Like, I was just so fucking into it. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Where did this movie come from? Yeah. Like, and it was yeah. so crazy with the, oh, you know, here's the Russians and the Americans and this sub and this other sub and the, you know, Russian counts, like, you know, and all the, like, cost cuts between all the different things. And they all come together mm. at the end, this whole global so much intrigue so much intrigue and it was again like yeah suspenseful just yeah it was very cool anyway so that's partly but also like i can also kind of i could tell in some other way then because i had already some of that movie that this movie was of that same era somehow the foley artist was the same for die hard and the hunt for red october there you go vanessa ament ament a-m-e-n-t anyway but but yeah, so I think I probably could have liked this in a similar way, like Hunt for Red October, because it did have because a lot of kind of smart suspense and intrigue and gimmicks, right? Like, in some ways, almost they're the opposite, because this entire movie just takes place in a single building, whereas Hunt for Red October took place over the entire globe. Right. But again, like you had this character. But a lot of it's inside of you know, a sub horizontal yeah. space instead of a vertical space. Right. Yeah. Very claustrophobic still. Yeah. But again, um, like the scene of him. Yeah. When he like drops the C4 down the elevator shaft, which I will say did confuse me a little bit. Well, how so? Like, like how, why, why it did exploded? he do that? Exactly. Like, did he re like, did he just by the grace of God, not to blow like the whole tower and just collapse? <laughs> At yeah, that moment, I guess so. like he was just like, "Shit, I gotta do something." I don't know. I have C four. I'll just set this off to create a distraction. Oh shit! I just blew up the whole fucking building. Like, is that what happened? Well, yeah, sort of. He let his emotions get the best of him. It's like my grandfather used to say. You might know him. His name was Pop, but uh, he said, "Never use C four with your emotions." Is what he always said. Right. So I think McLean's doing a little bit of that, but also. You had the two guys with the uh, rocket launcher there, and mm -hmm. they were down lower, so they could, right. you know, hit that armored vehicle, and then they hit it again. Like, you hit it once, and it's like, the vehicle's a little fucked up, but it's fine. Like, it didn't hurt them yet. You hit it again, and all of a sudden, they're rolling around, they're on fire, and they're all fucked up. So, he was trying to take those two guys out so they wouldn't wreak any more havoc, and just to kill a couple more baddies like you know what fuck you guys so Boom. he kind of timed he did a little like physics in his head okay things accelerate at 9.8 meters per second per second squared mm -hmm. i need it to go down so far let me set the timer for that and drop it so it just blows up their floor well no there wasn't i don't think there was any timer it was just the impact of it hitting i guess because it did know. like blow up and maybe they were on some mezzanine level or something where it stopped because, like, it kind of blew up one of the floors that wasn't it wasn't like the ground floor. It was maybe like a fifth or a quarter of the way up, and like, it just totally took out that tower. Yeah, I hmm, that's a good thing. It's a good question. Like, Which, I know there's separate elevators. There's the express elevator, and then there's the so no. This is why because they took the elevator car down to that floor and he dropped it down that shaft. Right. So the it car had them. stopped. Right. Got it. All right. That makes I sense. I knew that I was missing something. The express there. elevator. Yeah. How does an express elevator work? It doesn't stop at every floor. But I mean, if you're the only person in the elevator, what's the difference? Well, then there is no difference, but also like somebody can't stop it. Like 
on the eighth floor, like, mm, oh, I'm going to go up, ding, right. Know? It only stops every 10 floors. I guess the only reason I asked that is because I just had a thought about maybe how that express elevator worked. Because, okay, this is where I'm going to nitpick slightly. <clears throat> okay. I have, a, I have a, just one little nitpick thing that got me is when McLean gets to the Japanese business tower, he's like, I'm looking for Holly Gennaro or whatever. I wonder if you're going to say the same thing that's always bothered me. And I don't think so. I think it's going to be a little different. And he's like, he's like... Yeah, everyone's at the Christmas party on the... Just take the express elevator and stop when you hear all the noise. Right. Like, how do you take an elevator and then stop when you hear the noise? Like, he elevators don't silly. work that way. He was being silly. But he didn't say, like, what level to go to. Like, they already knew. instructions. No, they already knew. The little fancy screen told him it was on the 30th floor. He goes, 30th floor? He's like, yeah, they're the only ones left in the building. Christmas party. Take the express elevator. Stop when you hear the noise. But he was just being silly. Right. They already knew what floor. They both. They. I guess if they knew even. the floor, I. It's just one of the little things. My point. The thing that always bugged me though is like he comes into the lobby. The guy's sitting there. He's like, hey, what's up? He's like, I'm looking for you know Holly McLean. I'm here to see Holly McLean. And he's like, just type it in there. And he makes him go through all this thing. Like, okay, I'm going to go to the, you know, type in the last, you know, three letters of her last name. He types M. Oh, shit, I don't see it. Next page. It's not there. What the fuck? Goes back, goes to the G section, sees Gennaro, Holly. He's like, Jesus Christ, went back to her fucking maiden name. And that pisses him off. So he's already going to walk into her office like a little pissed off because she went back to her maiden name. Then... McLean's like 30th floor because it has, you know, where she's located. So it's like, hey, asshole, if they're the only ones left in the building, why don't you just tell them that in the first place? Right. Yeah, no. I'm looking for Holly Gennaro. The only people are on the 30th floor up there, especially since it's all Nakatomi. That's where the Christmas. Come on, dude. You just wanted to show off your fancy touch screen or what? I mean, I know we ha it was good. It was for the audience's sake. So we could see that she changed her name. Right. I and know. his reaction. Okay. But they could have, again, written it in better. Right. Now I know what a TV dinner feels like. <laughs> That's good quality 80s humor, right? There. I know. There, it did have some of that 80s humor in there. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. There's some good, good stuff, though. Now, you know, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Yep. Did you know where that was from? Oh, I knew where previously? that was from. That's like an icon. Okay. I mean, to me, that's just an iconic type thing. But you knew it was from Die Hard. Yeah, I knew it was from Die Hard. I knew he says it in there. You know, I knew like some of the imagery from it, like him in the elevator shaft, lighting the lighter and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. him swinging on the fire hose and him saying, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And did you know he had the gun taped to his back? I didn't know that. Did you know it as that scene was unfolding? I did not know that either. So it was a little surprise. It was you. a little surprise. A little treat. Yep. Which, again, was also in the novelization. How do you know? Because... You didn't read a fucking book, I did didn't you? read it, but I okay. Wikipedia goes into a great length saying, like, the movie was very closely related to the... The movie followed the novel very closely, including all these. And then there's, like, a, like 18 bullet points... Like, he taped his gun to his back. It was a terrorist, blah, 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 like all this stuff, yeah. Only had two bullets left. How about when uh, Alan Rickman, when Hans Gruber, is up there checking the explosives, and McLean finds him? Yes. And then he pretends to be 
cowardly and one of the business people Mm -hmm. with his American accent, which I didn't think was that good. But how clever was it that he looked on the board and found a name so that when McLean asked him what his name was, he could tell him. And he took it a step further because the board up there had all the, you know, directory of all the employees that worked there. He decided to be Clay, W.M. Clay for William, but he didn't say that. He said Clay, Bill Clay. Right. And then McLean looks up at it, cross-references. All right, I guess I'll trust him, kind of, not totally. But he said Bill, not William. Yeah, no, liked it. And again, that was some good psychological cat and mouse there. Right. That worked. That worked. That worked well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, dirtied by weird, like, uh, overly conservative (laughs) propaganda. It was just some good, like, uh, suspenseful psychological. Now, uh, talk about overly conservative. Um, underlying propaganda. When was the last time you saw The Hunt for Red October? I'm not sure. Because I probably saw it in 1992, I'm going to say, <laughs> the last time. I want to think, I think maybe like 2004, I saw and how did, I watched politically, it. Politically, how did I, you feel watched, about it? I think like the first maybe half hour of it sometime in the last five years. Be interesting to see if the same... I didn't have any political problem with it. Well, that was in 2004, though. Yeah, well, and even lately. I I feel like the movie is not conservative in this very... Or maybe it's conservative in a different way. I don't know. Like, again, you have Russians. They're kind of the bad guys. Except, not really. You have a Russian that wants to defect, right? Right. You got to come to America because America's the best, baby. Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily have an... And maybe it's just because, again, I'm American and grew up in the 80s, but I'm like, okay, that's a normal viewpoint. Like, I didn't, I don't, I'm not going to go so far to fault a movie. I guess somehow the difference, like with Die Hard, is like the enemies are other Americans. If you're going to make another country the enemy, per se, that's maybe okay. Except the other country wasn't an enemy. The, 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 The sub captain was a good guy. The Russians that we saw in this movie were the good guys. Granted, America and Russia were at war, yes, but that's just a geopolitical fact of life. I don't think it necessarily went out of its way to justify and try to say, yes, Russia is evil, you know? Maybe it did a little bit with, like you said, they wanted to defect, so why is America so much greater? But I think also it had to do with the fact that he just didn't want there to be a nuclear war. Like, the captain Mm -hmm. of the Red October was just... um, too he was just like this sub is too powerful it's gonna shift the balance of power we need to stay like in this stalemate so he defected again i haven't seen it in 24 years so yeah like i'm just getting broad brush strokes here yeah but yeah it is like russians just want to come to america because i w- always wanted to see montana kind well of that was in there too because america's awesome and russia's cold and awful and well the idea was in russia you couldn't you couldn't like you know travel freely you needed papers when you went from one place to another which i guess was kind i don't know how true that was i mean it was maybe true if you're leaving like you know let's say going from russia proper to like ukraine or something like well that was back in uh ussr i guess yeah this was definitely ussr time yeah this was cold war although ironically i guess the cold war ended shortly after that movie came out but yeah, I guess they were filming it, and it was still going on. <laughs> yeah. 
And then it's like, oops. It came out, and then another year, year and a half later, it's like, yeah, okay, no more Cold War. So this guy's watching football. You know, once the terrorists take over, he's watching football down there. He's pretending to just be, you know, he's acting casual. He's a terrorist. Right. But he's acting casual as the front desk guy. Sergeant Al Powell comes in because the fire alarm went off, and then there's some gunfire. So he finally shows up. Mr. Southern Drawl dude is watching some football just with his feet up, casual as can be. Doesn't want to doesn't want to tip his hand that holy shit, there's twenty terrorists with explosives and hostages up there. Anyway, he's watching football, and it's Christmas Eve. This movie came out in 1988. Um. So Notre Dame is supposed to be playing and they did not play in a bowl game in on Christmas Eve in 86, 87, 88 or 89. And in fact, most of those years, there wasn't even a bowl game on Christmas Eve. I think in only one of those years was there a bowl game. So I wonder why they chose college football, because there's usually NBA Christmas Eve times. That's like, you know the heart of NBA season, but it's hit or miss as far as college football goes. But they chose it, obviously. It's just not where they wanted to put their energy. McTiernan must be into deciding what sports team but slash so, game well, to put Well, somebody on. put their, don't say that, somebody put their energy into it. Somebody's whole job is putting their energy into exactly that shit. I think it said it in the script. Someone was writing up a script, but they didn't put a bracket and just say, insert sports talk here and they're just like sitting at their typewriter writing they're in the heat of the whatever they're just like yeah i'm just watching Notre dame like they just wrote it down sure the writer like, i don't did, need but to, i don't need to research this line it's not that important <laughs> of course the writer doesn't need to but when, once they have their production meetings it's somebody's whole job is to do that stuff the production designer or whoever art director probably production designer and like the whole props, and then they actually see the TV, so you got to get a clip of it. People are thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, they're, they're doing that, but, but they have a little slip of paper that says, we no, need not, a Notre Dame no. game, because the script Fuck. says Notre Dame game. No, It doesn't no, say pick what game, what sport. Shut up. No way. No way. They are thinking about it. They chose it deliberately. It didn't, it, I can almost guarantee you it wasn't written at Notre Dame. Like, somebody chose it. Or because it was written that way in the band. novel, and they just transcribed the line. Well, you're the Mr. I-know-everything-about-the-novel, was it? That part, I don't, I can't say. I feel like maybe I should get the novel. It was re-released to mark Die Hard, the film's 25th anniversary. It was put back in print. John McTiernan directed Predator. Yes, he did. And Hunt for Red October, right? Yep. But yeah. then I think we would be, if we're going to talk about John McTiernan, and I know we talked about this before, we have hero. to talk about him a little bit. Oh, boy. And his kind of troubles. Yeah. And he's the had fact some that he troubles. went to prison yeah, and doesn't make yeah. movies anymore. I know. It's, uh, we have talked about this. I don't know how at length, but it's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's just fucking crazy. Uh, there's wiretapping. Uh, rollerball is involved. Yeah. Yeah. He, when he was making the rollerball film, which I guess is a remake, he like got all paranoid or something and like, like illegally wiretapped like people involved in the production or like studio executives or something to see like what the fuck they were saying about him or 
how they were conspiring against him to ruin his movie. Right. And then, as always, the the, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Right, because because he didn't get in trouble for the wiretapping. He lied about it, like, under... lied about it. He lied about it to the FBI and was like, no, I didn't do that. And that's what sent him to prison. Right. Always the cover-ups. He was there for, like, 18 months or something in prison. prison. Jesus. October 2008, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated McTiernan's four-month sentence and ruled that Judge Fisher had erred and he was entitled to a hearing as to whether his plea could be withdrawn. Oh, boy. Yeah, 2009. I mean, this was going on. Shit was going on yeah, for a like while. Yeah, like, he did the wiretaps like, in, like, 2000, but then in, like, it was in 06 is when, like, the legal action started and everything else. The wheels of justice turn slowly, my friend. Yes. I mean, prison. January 14th, 2013, Supreme Court declined to hear that. I mean, this is still going on while we were recording fucking gutter balls. He was surrendered to federal prison on April 3rd, 2013, to serve a 12-month sentence. Federal prison camp Yankton, South Dakota. Minimum security, former college campus. White-collar criminal offenders. Oh, man. He lost 30 pounds in there. He was emotionally disintegrating. He managed to write a possible sequel for The Thomas Crown Affair while in prison. You gotta fill up your time with something. I mean, he got out on February 25th, 2014, under house arrest until April 4th, 2014. I mean, fuck, man. So the last movie he made was Basic in 2003. The man who directed Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, life comes at you fast, Brad. It does indeed. You know, I haven't seen any of the, speaking of Die Hard with a Vengeance, I haven't seen any of the Die Hard sequels, obviously. Or maybe not so obviously, but. I have. Watching this movie, I feel like there should not be sequels to this movie. No, there shouldn't be. Kind of the way Jaws. It's like, Jaws doesn't need, this shouldn't have sequels. Like, you're just ruining it. Like, you, there was a classic piece of cinema it with a self-contained story you don't need to like keep making sequels to it and you know die hard and again i guess it comes down to what kind of die hard what is die hard right again it was a yes it makes sense as a self-contained story you have this every man who's thrown into this incredible situation and how does he react right and then it's like oh next year it happens again Merry Christmas! He's someone, and then fucking terrorists show up again where he is. And it's like, oh, and then a couple years later, it happens again! Yep. And then yep. again! Although, I'll give, um, I mean, I like them. I like the first three just because I was really into Die Hard, so. <coughs> yeah, I, I mean, supposedly know. the third one, I remember when that was out, and, like, it was supposed to be a big deal. Like, it was supposed to be good. It's not bad. Even though, it's, like, it's, it's definitely a. Definitely has its moments. You know, it might just be a great, you know, again, a great Bruce Willis action movie. They throw Sam Jackson in for good measure. Jeremy fucking Irons. Yeah. I mean, they call it Die Hard 3. Maybe it didn't need to be that. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but. Right. That's the other thing you could have done. Like Dirty Harry had a bunch of sequels, but they didn't call them Dirty Harry 2, Dirty Harry 3. They called them like The Enforcer or Sudden Death or, you know. But, like, the character was the same. Right. Like, don't just call it Die Hard 2. Die Harder. I guess they, whatever. Branding. Branding, Brad. Yeah. Did you feel this movie had a Michael Bay look to it? Especially in the beginning, with its goldenness, like, shadows and 
just warm tones. I did notice that the movie used extensive use of the color black. Black. All right. And I was like kind of noticing. Yeah, I guess it, I didn't really notice the gold tones as much. I think a lot of movie back then movies just had gold tones. I think it was just how you did it. I think it was maybe just like the film stock, you know, like now uh, everything if, gets color corrected digitally you after go, you shoot it. Do we want it to I be mean, blue? Do we want it to be green? Do we want what? How do we want it right now? Back then, it was just like, well, we shot it on Kodak, whatever. It's golden. People are still color time and shit back then. They're color timing it to, to make it match, so to speak. If you go to 648 and look at this shot as they're driving up to the Japanese business tower and you see it in the distance, like, it is fucking orange as shit. Well, they shot it during a sunset. Yeah. Because it gets, and it actually matches the movie because it gets to be dark soon. Sure. But, like, they're really pushing it. Like, it's really orange, like, way oranger. Like, and I mean literally pushing it. Well, they could have used a filter or something for that. Yeah, they're doing all that shit. But it was a deliberate choice to have this look. Yeah. But the thing that I noticed about the look, completely separate from the point you're making. (laughs) Okay, great. 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 Is just that, again, I was looking at it and I was just thinking about, again, the fact how it was shot on film. And, you know, I don't know. In my mind, you know, I do a whole lot of film versus digital thinking for whatever reason. I'm stuck on it. But again, the use of the word, the use of black in this, again, like. Digitally, like things don't go black the same way. Oh, that's for sure. I agree with you. And there. again, I think there's an advantage to that and a negative to it, right? I mean, again, it's an aesthetic choice. And you can, of course, adjust the tone curve and bring the blacks back if you want, but you don't have to. But I think back then it was just kind of like, yeah, like the dynamic range of film. Yeah. I don't know. It was just different. It was just like, yeah, things, there was a yeah. lot of black. And I was just like, you know, that's what I miss. I kind of go back and forth on that, but like, I'm in a, a either a trough or a peak right now where I'm back on the god damn it I can't uh, like I miss the dynamic range of film. Mm-hmm. Like you just can't. Although film has edit. better dynamic range, why is shit going to black? It's almost like the reverse. Like you shoot something digitally like there's detail in every fucking shadow completely. Like there's no black. I don't know. Well, like I'm paused on this shot where we're like it's the sky. And then, like, trees in the foreground, which are in shade and shadowed. But you can see cloud definition in the sky and leaf definition in, like, almost inky blackness of the trees. So that's kind of fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, The teddy bear that he's taking, Brad, when he's on the plane? Yes. Apparently, now, as the resident Hunt for Red October expert... McTiernan oh. used the same teddy bear in the Hunt for Red October. Look, now that you, you know, as soon as you, yeah, I got that. Okay. That's, I see that. So you, you know a teddy bear from the Hunt for Red yes, October? Yes, I do. How does that manifest itself? It's a similar thing in the beginning. He is like, there's a shot in the beginning. There's like one shot, one scene. I think it's just one shot. I don't know. He's like at his house, which is in like London. This is Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Ryan, mm-hmm. who is now played by, again, talking about sequels, not like, I don't know, having like Chris Pine play young Jack Ryan. It just doesn't quite line up for me, but whatever. Well, well didn't Harrison Ford play this? Yes. That character after Hunt for Red October? Yeah. Ben Affleck has played Jack Ryan. 
Baldwin was a one-off, right? Yeah, he was. No. Yes. No. Yes. He was a one-off. He was a one-off. Yeah, I think he was a one-off. But he's the, in my mind, again, I just like Hunt for October. He's the Jack Ryan for me, right? Hmm. Okay. But anyway, in the beginning, yeah, there is a scene. I can't remember exactly what's happening. He is at his home, and he's like, oh, I have to leave. His wife is played by Gates McFadden, Hmm. who plays Beverly Crusher in Star Trek The Next Generation. Was that for my benefit or the listener's benefit? Uh, The listener's benefit, because I know you know who Gates McFadden is. Okay. You even went, hmm, when I said it. Yeah. Yeah, she has like one shot in this movie as his wife. But I guess they're maybe just establishing he has a wife because, again, there's these whole series of Jack Ryan novels and maybe, I don't know. If they were to make a second uh, one, they could bring her back as the wife. I don't know. He's really got a type, doesn't he, McTiernan? Yeah, I I could see that. So anyway, the teddy bear. Anyway, there's a teddy bear there. Like, he's, like, bringing the teddy bear for his daughter or, like, they were going to go because it was, I don't know. There's something in there with a teddy bear. He has a teddy bear for some reason. Shows he's a good guy. He cares, too. Yep. You know, he's got a heart of gold. Um, I know that because I went to try to find this movie so I didn't have to buy it. I tried to find it somewhere streaming. Mm-hmm. I checked Amazon and it turns out that I had already bought this at some point. It's like, you own this. Watch it now. Like, oh shit. Oh, there you go. So I started watching it and Amazon Prime, I guess it's Prime. Well, not even Prime. It's just I bought it on Amazon. It has a feature when you're watching it in a browser called X-Ray. I don't know why they call it X-Ray, but it gives you like it shows you the character name and the actor's name for anybody that's in the current scene. It gives you general trivia. So, like, I'm paused with, when he's got this teddy bear and he's ogling the stewardess. Mm-hmm. Stella Hall plays the stewardess. Then it says general trivia. Director trademark. Teddy bear. McLean has a teddy bear for his family. The same bear is seen at the end of The Hunt for Red October. Oh, the end that's of. That's how I knew that. So at yeah, the end, the he end. goes back and brings it to his daughter or something. Yeah. According to X-Ray Vision, that's what happened. So I want to stay in the scene just for a second. So Lebowski, he writes the check. Yes. The date on the check. Do you remember it? September 11th, 1991. How could I forget? Yes. 9-11-91. Yes. John McClane stands up, goes to grab his luggage. The passenger next to him who suggested the fist with your toes on the carpet sees his gun. And McClane says, well, rewind a little bit. Fist with your toes, he said, trust me, works better than a shower and a hot cup of coffee. Yes, sir. Trust me, been doing it for nine years. McLean gets up. He sees his gun hanging there. Don't worry, I'm a cop. Trust me, I've been doing it for 11 years. Nine, 11. Shit. Shit. Just can't get away from it, can we? No. Well, you know, in (sighs) Nakatomi Towers, Twin Towers. Right. Like, look at the cover of Die Hard. It's like two towers exploding. Terrorists in there. Terrorists in there. They say 9-11. It was all right before us. It's all right there for us. Um, Putting the picture down was a nice plot device, too. Going back to, like, the feet. Bare feet and using that. You know, because she gets mad at him and slams the picture down. Whatever. There's some nice shit going on. But, again, I wish you could have experienced it sans... Um, political right. lens. Well, I mean, which... I still could appreciate the, yes, the way 
it was definitely a it had some twists on the convention of an action movie it had the um yeah and a lot of nice little plot things putting the picture down the rolex two guns two bullets tape yeah politics aside like there's just some great visual storytelling in this yeah no without a doubt and another like here's one when so since he's such a blue collar guy and he arrives at the airport he's not expecting to have a limo ride he's never had a limo ride so he wouldn't be looking for people first of all they should have told him that they were giving him a ride but whatever he wouldn't be looking for people to have a little placard with his name on it but they do a close-up and these carts are coming past you and he's kind of looking at the carts because they're blocking his path and then as the carts go past there's argyle holding the sign and that's the only reason he sees it and i just thought that's a little thing that they did that was nice because you know it'd be so easy for him to just stroll get his luggage and stroll out and be like oh that's me but he wouldn't be looking for that yeah i expected argyle to have a bigger part in the movie yeah, I expected after this movie came out for him to have like a whole series of movies all his own. Like he was going to turn into that kind of guy. Yeah. Like I and he thought, never really did. Yeah, like I thought Bruce Willis would, you know, John McClane, like that was kind of his little ace in the hole. Okay, I have a limo with the driver and it has a phone in it like downstairs. No one knows he's there. You know, he could get, he could, you know, maybe go down and try to use the phone to talk to the police or something or... Uh, right you know be like okay argyle i need your help i know you're scared but listen i need you to like hold this cable for me while i repel down the side you know something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. him to maybe become but again then you have two people he wouldn't be a rugged individual (laughs) it would be a rugged twosome or something but yeah i don't know i expected more from argyle than just to him him sit down there for the whole movie well he does punch the one guy at the end he punches the one guy yeah yeah, but it seemed kind of like tacked on. But yeah, it was there. He's but again, something they pretty. set up that you didn't have to wait the whole movie to like pay off. Right. But they would One go back to him details. once in a while. Like, it's really funny when Al Powell is finally welcomed to the party after McLean drops the body on the car. And then the terrorists are like shooting at the car and he's in reverse like. Holy shit, they're shooting at me, blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> you know, it's one of these like smash cuts where they just smash cut inside the limo argyle's got the music on he's got his sunglasses on he's talking on the phone to one of his bays and he's like turn out to boo but you see behind him like the car go right like in the background getting shot at like all hell is breaking loose but he's just in there like partying yeah basically and like that was pretty fun. yeah and i could also see you know like watching this film again the mixture of the violence and the action, but also with the humor again, mm-hmm. like that scene, you know, um, I'm trying well, to, even, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. you know, like I could see there's even more. I'm trying to came and think, right? Like, but now I have stuff, a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. Like I could just see like, you know, I could again, imagine myself being in 1988 in a theater watching this and like, just being like, holy shit, you know? Cause again, I don't know, but like, again, that mixture of action and humor, I think is critical. To making a movie yeah. kind of like enjoyable and fun, yeah, palatable, and they they really yeah they did that here. When speaking of now, I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! He sends him down the elevator. He's tied to the chair, and he wrote, "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho on there, and like his the terrorist head is slumped to the side because he broke his neck. You know, 
and Hans or whatever, you kind of see him like he takes his hand and kind of flips his head to the other side just to demonstrate that his neck's kind of broken. And if you watch, like, as soon as Hans's hand goes to his head, like, just before he touches his head, um, the dead terrorist's eyes close. Just cause it's just a reflex. Mm, the actor right. couldn't help it. Oh, okay. It's one of those things that I was noticing even in the fucking 80s. It was meant for this shit. You're right? a, you're a, yeah. You're a stickler. I saw your Takagi Akagi. Yeah, what is that? Which what, you've like, mentioned before. The Red Castle. Yeah, I don't know. It's always bothered me. Takagi Akagi. Ah! And what the hell? This is this might be the last thing I got here, but what the hell? When he's in the limo, Argyle's driving him to the Japanese business tower, and he, John McClane reaches down and like pulls up this like bag. Right. And Argyle's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. oh, Oh, sorry, it's the girl's day off, and he throws it in the back. What is that? Do you have any idea? I, so I had two ideas. One, I was like, it's, so what it seems like is something like he was, it's just like a white paper bag. Yeah. Like he and his girlfriend took the limo to In-N-Out Burger. Right. That's what it looks like. But but like the weird, but like, why would you even be like, oh, it's my girlfriend's day. Like, Like, why don't you just be like. Sorry, I didn't think you'd be up here. I left some trash here. Like, right? I mean, was it the supposed girls' to, day off? Like, like it just and in the way the eighties, like it's her diaphragm or something. Yeah, like the way it's the eighties is framed. so weird. Like, I'm like, I just feel like that is this some sort of like sexual reference? Yeah, like it's panties or something. Right, but it's a white it's a paper bag. It just looks like a white paper bag to me. That's all it looks like. So I don't know. But again, so here's the thing. Also, I noticed here, right? Like. There was, again, going back into the 80s, like, watching movies back then, there would be, like, weird things in it that, let's say, I didn't fully understand. Like, I was realized, okay, this is some kind of sex reference or some kind of, like, you know, casual hooking up concept and you knew or it was, slang. You knew it was something, you know? Something, you knew there was something But I there, don't really know it. what it means. But the problem is right. now I go back... And I watch the movies, and I'm, I still don't know what they mean. Like that scene. Like, you know, as a 12-year-old, I'd probably be like, oh, shit, that's like her sex bag. Women have, like, white paper sex bags they use or something. I don't know what it is. But no, they don't. <sighs> like, I don't know what the fuck that was. There was another line in here that kind of confused me, too, when she, again, again, talking about what era are we in. The pregnant lady was like, oh, do you think it's okay if I have a little drink or whatever? Yes. Yes, I have that in the different... That's one of my different era alerts. Yeah. And she says... Pregnant drinking. And she says, the baby... That baby is ready to tend bar. Right. I don't know what drink that means. That, I mean, drink it up. Go nuts is what that means. That's a weird express. I guess. Okay. I guess I never thought that she would be saying that. Yeah. She's just like, hey, live it up. It's fine. It wasn't like that. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. It's like, not only is it going to drink, it's going to be the fucking bar. It's going to be slinging drinks. Right. Like, I thought it might be, I mean, it might make sense if it's like, listen, you're such a fucking lush. Why are you even like asking? That baby's ready to tend bar. Oh, you're I having eight you gin and Cokes every night. Fucko. Like, you know what I mean? Like, not fucko, but like, that's actually pretty cool of you is actually the sentiment. Gin and I don't think that's cool at all. That sounds fucking hideous. Did you say? <laughs> oh my god! Gin and Coke. Yeah. What's happening? I feel like it's that Twilight Zone story where 
Everybody starts speaking a different language, but it happens one word at a time. Like, what? What did you say? Oh, I said the Falanitskit. Uh, Falanitskit? What's Falanitskit? Well, you know, we're going to the store in Falanitskit. What are you? Fuck. It starts one word at a time, and then all of a sudden, like, you don't understand any of the words. That's what I feel like is happening. Gin and Coke. <laughs> Gin and Coke? It's for the Christ baby, okay? Me. That's the oh, classic okay. drink yeah. of a pregnant woman. <laughs> Get the it's that juniper approved. flavor in there. It's doctor approved. It's herbal, man. Yes. It's good for the child. Exactly. If you want a healthy baby, you need to drink a couple gin and Cokes every night. <laughs> not Diet Coke. That would be disgusting. No. That aspartame is not good for you. Well, we've... um. Now, hey, if anybody knows what that damn pa- white paper bag is that Argyle throws in the back, it's the girl's day off. Please help us. Please. Right? Oh, sorry about that. It's the girl's day off. I didn't even take it to mean, like, it's his girlfriend. Like, it's the other person who drives this limo. The girl's day off. Maybe. I mean, again, I took it, like, the same way to, like, oh, the old Mike. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, the girl, my girl. I don't know. It's vernacular. Fuck is it? Well, Brad, we've, we've died. We've died pretty hard. Indeed. Haven't we? I just got <laughs> one thing to say to you. Lay it on Yippee-ki-yay, me. yippee motherfucker! Next time on... Johnson? And you're some now! What the rock?